Thank you. Right. Cycles of intimacy then. Isaiah 55 8 says this For my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are your ways my ways, says the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. But as the rain comes down, and the snow from heaven, and do not return there, but water the earth, and make it bring forth and bud, that it may give seed to the sower, and bread to the eater, so shall be my word be that goes forth from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but shall accomplish what I please, and it shall prosper in the thing for which I sent it. What he's saying here is that it's cyclical. He sends the rain down and the snow and it waters the earth and it brings forth something. And as we know the soul cycle is that it evaporates again and comes down. It comes down in a cycle. So he's saying in just the same way as my word goes out from my mouth it will come back to me having accomplished the purpose that I call it forth for. So each cycle of intimacy has its point of worship and surrender, pleasure and pain, achievement and suffering, weakness and power. Now there are words there that we recoil from, don't we? Surrender, pain, suffering and weakness, we don't like those. But in order to go through the cycles, that is what happens and he will bring us to those places. Um, because when he brings you to a place of surrender you worship uh, when he brings you to a place of pain you find the pleasure after and it's like a child a childbirth you know the mother has the baby and the pain is intense at the time but she forgets it the minute she's through it because she's got the baby and I find that in my experience it's like that with God going through the pain of the circumstance whatever it is by the time I'm through it, I think I say to him, Lord, that, that was not as bad as I thought, as it could have been. I, I just, you forget the pain of the circumstance that, brought, that he brought about because he's doing something. So you get these uh, points. And intimacy with God is based on absolute reality. The reality of where you are in him not where you think you are or where you would like to be or where or how you measure yourself or how someone else measures you it's where he sees you as being at any time intimacy intimacy so we're learning to be drawn by him and one of the things you have to learn to do is to anticipate the touch of God he loves it so much when you come to know that it's for him to make the first move and then you make the second. You respond to him. You become a responder. Do you remember yesterday we were talking about the um, change that there needed to be in our quiet times from coming in full of business and just doing the same old routine. There needed to be a radical change so that he can make the first move. He can have his agenda and we respond to what his agenda is. Sometimes we miss it. I think I probably missed it completely this morning. Despite the fact that I've got nice and early, I think I completely missed it. But there we are, that's alright. Talk to him later about that and he'll show me. Your job in the earth is to be the beloved of God. And the beloved always responds to the overtures of the lover. He initiates, you respond. It delights him. 
So we learn to live with expectancy. Everything flows out of our relationship with him. It does not begin with him and end in our ministry, inverted commas. Our ministry is only a part of the cycle because the cycle ends with him. Because Romans 11.36 says, Of him and through him and to him are all things. The process of how we get from A to B is just, just as important as completing the journey to him. We think it's going to be great when we get there. <laughs> Let's get there quick. We think destination, he thinks journey. He thinks we are going to have so much fun along the way enjoying the journey together. He thinks Concord, we think, he, we think Concord, he thinks camel. You think, I'll get there quick. He says, let's have a three months trip on a camel. Well, sometimes we just have to slow down and take it at the pace he wants to go. Sometimes we have to speed up. Like I think Graham was saying on one of those CDs, that you're going to have to learn to run. Uh, so it's the time or the season that we happen to be in. We've got to go at the pace he wants to go. If he wants to run, we've got to run. And sometimes he slows it down. And he's got various ways of getting us to slow down. Circumstances for one. God will always manage to get your attention one way or the other. He will slow you down. Often people come here and I know that God is tying their legs together. He's just got them. Uh, because he wants to do business with them. They don't come to see me. Nobody comes here to see me. They come to meet him. So because he's simultaneous and circular, he works on several cycles at once in our relationship with him. And there are four, there's probably more, but these four will do for a start. And as I said, I'm going to look at two of them. We're looking at principles here and the way he likes to work. So number one is the relational cycle. Number two is the life cycle. Number three is the cycle of anointing. And four is the cycle of transformation. And as I said before, today I'll be looking at the first and the fourth, which is the relational cycle and the cycle of transformation, because that's the ones I'm currently in. And I know I'm moving in the relational cycle, and I can't tell you where because it's a secret. But I'm also moving in the, in the cycle of transformation. <coughs> So the, the first cycle, the relational cycle, is the cycle of sonship. Jesus is the model for this one. And uh, Matthew 3, um, 13 to 17. Then Jesus came from Galilee to John at the Jordan to be baptised by him. And John tried to prevent him, saying, I have need to be baptised by you, and you are coming to me? But Jesus answered and said to him, Permit it to be so for now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfil all righteousness. Then he allowed him. Then Jesus, when he had been baptised, came up immediately from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him. And he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting on him. And suddenly a voice came from heaven, saying, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Actually, if we ever look at um, 
the attestation or the recognition of kingship, three things happened there. Um, when John recognised him, he was recognised him as a king. Uh, when the Spirit came on him, that was the anointing of kingship. And when the voice came from heaven, that was the attestation of a king. So uh, Hebrews would have known, the Jews would have known what was happening. They would have known, because that was the way. And the signs and everything, they would have known. So that's, that's all about Jesus being king and, and how it shows up in the scriptures. But the Father says in verse 17, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Up to this point, Jesus hadn't done anything. But here, he establishes him relationally. This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. As with Jesus, so with us. He establishes us in sonship first. Next we go into servanthood. If you're looking at the cycle, the next quarter is servanthood. Joyous service. Then at the sort of six o'clock stage, friendship. And then finally, at quarter two, slavery. But God is looking for establishing us in, as a sonship first. And he will do that before he will release you into ministry. Because you need to know who you are and whose you are before he can let you loose. And we've all received the spirit of adoption, which is Romans 8 verse 14. And all of us are children of God, but we're not all yet sons. We can all be children, tossed to and fro, but sons come through to maturity. And sonship is a great goal with God. We receive the spirit of adoption by which we cry out, Abba, Daddy, Father. In between those two words is the whole span of the growth of a child, from Daddy to Father. It's often been said that it's Abba and Father because it's a translation of what Abba is, but Abba is actually Daddy. So what you're seeing there is you're going from baby to fully mature son. And in between, the comma, is the whole of our Christian walk. An adoption. This is not as we understand it in the West, not the way I adopted my son at all. It's not just being called by the parent's name and going through a certain uh, ceremony to get the child yours. In Israel, when they came of age, and it didn't matter if it was an actual familial son or a bloodline son, um, if they had earned trust in accordance with the, the father's uh, wishes and become reliable and proved in themselves, then there was um, a ceremony of adoption which took place publicly. And this was in the village square and held there. There would be a little platform and a huge banquet and the father would bring this man that he had declared to be his son in front of the whole village and say, this is my beloved son. If you make a deal with him, you make a deal with me. So what was happening there when Jesus came up out of the water, God was attesting him as his very own son and setting his approval and saying, if he says something, it's my word. That is the significance behind what was happening there. So if you make a deal with him, you make it with me. If he signs a cheque, it's as if I've signed it, I'll pay up. If, he's, if uh, he, he signs a cheque, I'll give you the money. If he gives his word, it's as if I've given my word. A huios, fully mature son. 
the spirit of adoption comes to us to move us from being that little child into a fully mature adult in the purposes of God. And Galatians 4, 6 says, Because you are sons, God has sent forth the spirit of his son into your hearts, again crying out, Abba, Father. It's the sonship which releases the inheritance. It produces authority based on real identity. If we go back to this sheet that I gave you, you'll see that on the, the right-hand corner, the character goals and the ministry goals, both of them, you have a measure of rule and a measure of authority. That is God's goal. But he won't give you authority and rule until he considers that you are able to handle it. He will not put people into your care until he knows you will treat them properly. So you have to go through various tests and trials and after time you don't know what you're going through and why you're going through it. But the tests and the trials produce growth in along the way and it produces authority based on real identity as we grow from children into sons and we come into that dimension of authority and power in his name and through the position he's given us. You can't earn it in that sense. It is a gift from God and the spirit of his son and to be tested and to be in that place and to be trusted. So tests will come because he wants to bring you into something and he needs to test you sometimes time and time again in order that he can trust you because there are two things or three really there's what he's doing in us and what he's doing through us and there's the place he brings us to a place is the second thing where we trust him for everything so what Joyce and I are going through now is another level of trust he said to me this is the health trust part trusted him for finances to the point where we know that as long as he wants this ministry to go he will support it so we're confident in that but now it's health which is much closer isn't it to home so he brings us to that place through our various tests where we trust him for everything and then he brings us to a place where he can trust us and that is a whole different ball game when he can trust us, the heavens will open he will say, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And when we come to that place, we receive our toga virilis, as they call it. Uh, that's what they used to put on them. It's a mantle, uh, which is our mantle of sonship. So we should all be on our way to becoming fully mature sons. That should be our goal. Actually, that's what the church should be doing with us. should be bringing us from one degree of glory to another. But that's what God is doing now. He's taking over his church. He's taking it back. He's teaching them the basics. He's showing them actually where it was he wanted us to go and what he's doing in this new time. So stage two is servanthood. And the next point in this cycle is when he wants us to bring us into that. And servanthood is built on top of our prime identity as sons. Jesus only did what the Father showed him. And he learned obedience by the things that he suffered. It tells us that in Hebrews 5.8. Though he was a son, yet he learned obedience by the things which he suffered. He learned sacrifice, service and stewardship. 
and he became the example of humility. Uh, Philippians 2.5 says, Have this mind in you which was also in Christ Jesus. And it goes on to say what he gave up. In fact, it would probably be worth looking at it. Philippians 2. <coughs> we did a series that seemed to go on forever on Philippians, didn't we, girls? <coughs> Philippians 2.5 Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a servant, and coming in the likeness of men, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself, and became obedient to the point of death, even death of the cross. Therefore God has also highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow of those in heaven and those on earth and those under the earth and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. When he starts working this cycle out in our lives we begin to understand something of what Jesus did when he squeezed all his divinity if you like into a human body. And never forget that he is our man in glory. He is still a man, though he's in glory. Um, though he's God, he's still a man. So when you see him again, he will still be a man, glorified. He's our man in glory. He knows everything. He's experienced everything that we experience. So have this mind in you, which was also in Christ. And then Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6.19, you are not your own, you were brought with a price, you do not belong to yourself. So we come back to rights. The only right we have is the right to give up our rights. Do you remember that bit I read from uh, Oswald Chambers? I lay down my rights, I just want to be your servant, that's what he'll bring you to. My life does not belong to me. We always have a choice, flesh or spirit, that's the choice that we get because the whole of this teaching has really been about how to live in the spirit uh, and to learn to step back <coughs> into your spirit uh, and not live in the circumstance that is, is going on at the moment. So God's moving us from sonship through a cycle of servanthood. And it seems like God gives you your sonship and your identity and while you're basking in all of that, he takes it away from you and gives you a servant's role. Because Jesus gave away his privilege of sonship, gave away his privilege of honour and equality with God, and took upon himself the form of a servant. So there are levels of death in this relationship. God gives you sonship, and when you're enjoying it, he says, okay, now it's time to get on the altar. Do you remember we saw the altar yesterday when we had the plan, the floor plan of the uh, tabernacle, and the first thing inside the door was the altar. So he says, get up there now, I want to kill this thing in you. And I want to birth a servant. And as you let him, God will remove all that sense of power, authority, my ministry, my this and my that. It'll go. 
The trouble is that if you do not make this transition from sonship to servanthood, you go into ownership and it becomes my role, my ministry, my this, my that. You take ownership. So if you're wise, you lay on the altar and he strips all those things away from you and gives you a servant's role and takes you through a different cycle where you're learning how to be abased, you're learning how to serve and do the menial tasks. God is humbling you and so often he will give you wonderful fresh starts that start you lower than the place you started the time before. I can remember at least two. I can remember three times when I was held up publicly in meetings. Brilliant stuff. Because he has this series of elegant tests designed to strip you of your pride and your accomplishments. I can feel the flesh quivering, quivering in order to deliver you to a pure servant heart. And then when you're moving out in servanthood and walking in humility that you just want to serve him, that's when he begins to surprise you. But you have to be a servant before you can be called into friendship. Remember I talked about friendship too. Uh, that you don't share your secrets uh, with everybody. You share them with your friends. And Stephen, Jesus said, uh, I no longer call you servants, I call you friends. Because he told them the secrets of his heart. That was the disciples. You know, don't you, that he had about 12 that were the inner. He was a rabbi. And there would have been maybe 200 people walked around after him all day long as he was teaching. Um, but his inner circle, the ones to whom he shared his heart, the ones whom he knew, they were intimate with one another, they lived with one another in and out of each other's houses all the time. Those were the ones that, he, that really knew him and he really knew but the majority of them were just followers, believers. Uh, and, you know, we looked at the various different types of disciples, didn't we? So I'll do it again for, for uh, completeness sake, if I can remember it. There are four. The, rabbi, the rabbis they used to say when they were choosing their disciples, there were four types. There was the sponge, which uh, sucked up everything, the good, the bad and the ugly. <coughs> there was the funnel. You drop it all in the top end and it drops straight out the bottom. Uh, there was the sieve who would sieve out all the bits and pieces and all the minutiae and all the rubbish and set that aside whilst forgetting all the good stuff. And there was the sifter. And the sifter was one that sifted out all the fine flour and set that aside. So the rabbis were looking for the ones that was, were sifters the ones that would actually retain what was being taught, the ones that would carry that on to the next generation. There's a generational transfer going on here right now because God is into generational transfer. Because when I go, everything that I've learned and he's taught me will go unless I pass it on. Uh, and in this, in this time, there is, there's even a book about it, Passing the Baton. He's saying it to the prophetic. Pass the baton on to the next generation that they might run. Because I suspect that as we pass the baton on, you are going to be the ones that will actually go across the finishing line. Uh, so it's not just that I've suddenly decided to have a series of teachings. <laughs> this is God's command and commission. Pass the baton on. 
so whatever you pick up, hopefully you're all lovely sifters, sifting out the fine flour and picking it up and taking it. Uh, you can pass on, and you'll be passing on your baton to the next generation there. Anyway, give me a So, you have to be a servant before you can be a friend. And it needs this series of tests to prove your servanthood. And this is not serving to create your own platform or your own agenda, which is not servanthood. We looked at that, didn't we, early on. You can be stuck in this phase longer than you think, <clears throat> depending on your attitude, because God doesn't measure time, he measures growth, and he can see right through hypocrisy and agendas. You can make all the right noises, as far as people are concerned, but God will not permit you to move forward until you have a true servant heart, and he can trust you with what he really wants to give you. This is part of your inheritance, it's part of his eagerness, and his hunger for you, uh, because we are his hands and feet, we are his heart to people, and he wants to get us in the place where we're actually performing and doing that which he called us for. Our attitude can actually stop God from trusting us. And it's very easy for us to blame someone else. He's holding me back in my ministry. It's his fault. No, he's not. God is holding you back because he's looking for real servants and not pretend ones. The Lord says, you are my friends if you do whatever I command you to do, no matter what it is. So then we come into friendship. And there are no casual friends in the kingdom. Friendship is conditional totally on excellence of service. Do whatever I command you, no matter what. Excellence of service. Do you remember with one of the prophets he said, Today I'm going to take away from you the delight of your eyes and you are not to mourn. If you do whatever I command you. Do you think he still would have been an Old Testament prophet? If he'd have mourned for his wife when God took her away, there she was in the morning, there she was gone in the evening, that was it. You're not to mourn. Because he was using him as a prophetic incidence about what he was going to do with Israel. He said it's going to be like this. He's there in the morning, gone in the evening. Gone. So no matter what the cost to you, it's based on excellence of service. He's talking about a quality of servant who's prepared to give up everything no matter what the personal costs. <clears throat> the Lord said, I no longer will I call you servants for a servant does not know what his master is doing, but I've called you friends. For all, thing I've heard, all things I've heard from my Father I have made known to you. That is John 15:15. 15, 15. When my son got married for the first time, I'd not long had the call down to come down to Paddock Wood. Um, and I duly got the invitation to the wedding you know the way they send you these invitations but I knew that I had to ask the Lord if I could go to the wedding now that was going to shock some of you to the gunnels and you're going to rock on your heels but I knew what the call was on my life and I knew that if God said you're not to go I couldn't go so I laid it on the altar wasn't easy but I laid it down I laid it on the altar and between the, we, the, the flat was at one long corridor and the, the, the room sort of went off of that and between the lounge and my bedroom I heard him say to me because thou hast not withheld thy son, thine only son 
You remember when he put Isaac on the altar and lifted the knife? Mm -hmm. He was prepared to plunge that down because he was going to do what God had told him to do. And I knew that he was saying, I know in your heart you've not withheld him. You haven't just made an outward show of giving it to me. How you were going to get through it, you didn't know, but your trust was the fact that if that's what it costs, that's what it is. And, and you know he's my adopted son, and that makes him very special. <laughs> you don't go through the performance of adopting the child unless you really, really want one. He always used to say, you don't smack me like, like you would if I was yours, do you? Because you love me too much. <laughs> Gee, little monkey in you. Because <laughs> we told him right from the beginning, I told him right from the beginning that, you know, that I hadn't, he had not come from my loins, as it were. So he's going to test you to the ultimate. He's going to make you take that sword over whatever it is. The times that I've put this ministry on the altar is nobody's business because I just have to keep doing it. This is not my ministry, it's his. If he chooses to pull the plug on it, that's his. It's his, it's not mine. I've got nothing, no, it's a hands-free here. So I just warn you that this is what actually coming into friendship will mean, oh, Graham, I've just been reminded, Graham Cook, came the time when God said to him, want you to have your ear pierced, Graham. Now, I don't know which one it is that signifies a man is a homosexual and up for grabs. Uh, anybody, anybody know? <laughs> let's, oh, let's say for the, for the sake of example, it's the right ear. And he said, I want you to have your right ear pierced, Graham. Father, you know what that means. They'll think I'm up for grab. Oh, Father, can't I do something else? Silence. Three months, silence. Till Graham finally said, okay. And goes and has his ear pierced. God came back. It just gets a bit more difficult <laughs> as you go on because you are my friends if you do what I command you. Joyce and I are always saying, or I'm saying it particularly, Father, I just don't know when the time will come when we will, you will say to me, I want this. And I'll, I'll say, it's too much. I actually know of people who, who have had a call on their life and God has said, give me that. Cost is too great. What they are not realising is that if you give it to him, he will only multiply it and give it back. When you give it to him, you don't lose something, you gain. But because we're so fearful and we hold on, we can't let go. And he will know in your heart whether you're letting go or not. And it's, it's a, when we come to looking at um, the Beatitudes we're looking at, aren't we? And we're looking at uh, Bob Mumford's book, The King and You. He talks about going through that narrow place and squeeze everything being squeezed off so that you can pop through, and how he had to uh, give over. They had to give over their children, and and one little lad I think was uh, knocked down by a car, and there they were in surgery, just not knowing whether he was going to live or die, and they were worshiping because they'd given this child over to the Lord, and whether he took him or whether he whether he stayed with them. It was not theirs to decide, they just worshipped. I thought, crumbs, that's a place to come to. 
he's now in ministry and uh, serving the Lord um, as part of his dad's ministry. They've got a, a something called Father's House uh, out in Uganda or somewhere like that where they're taking orphans. Uh, absolutely amazing. So, it's no good me telling you things and holding back from what it's going to cost. Because what man building a tower doesn't sit down and count the cost before he starts. So friendship depends on the quality of obedience we display. Sonship is given, friendship is earned by service and obedience. And it's the combination of sonship which is given and servanthood which produces friendship. Okay, we'll finish there. So we've been looking at sonship leading to servanthood, which leads to friendship. And this is where we need the touch of God on us. And he sends the spirit of his son to touch our hearts in relationship with us. And the presence of the son's life within produces an extraordinary level of servanthood, which provokes the response, no longer will I call you servants, I've called you friends. Did you realise that you might want to say no, but God raises up a yes inside you? That's the way it works, you know. You think, what did I stand up for that for? And the <laughs> find your life goes in a strange direction. So friendship actually releases revelation at a much higher level and it draws us into the high places of God's confidence where his purpose and his destiny begin to unfold before us. That revelation in friendship leads us to a greater revelation in sonship which starts the cycle all over again. So you find there are degrees of sonship, degrees of servanthood, degrees of friendship, and each cycle releases a whole new level. We were talking about it on Monday, weren't we? And each time the cycle moves round and starts again, there is a greater process of death working through us and a greater anointing in life. So the final position from sonship uh, to servanthood to friendship is slavery. And you find yourself saying, Pierce my ear, O Lord my God, take me to your throne this day. I will serve no other God. Lord, I'm here to stay. In the Old Testament there came time when slaves could be released. But if they didn't want to go because they loved their masters, the master would take them to the doorpost and pierce their ear with an awl. Ever after that they stayed with the master. Have a look at the number of times Paul says in the epistles, Paul, a bondservant of Jesus Christ. He's talking love slave. The final stage in this cycle then is that you become the very love slave of Jesus, which is why, of course, God was asking Graham to have his ear pierced. That was a signification that he was a love slave. And the other cycle I'm going to look at is the cycle of transformation. As I said to you, there are two I'm in at the moment. One is the cycle, the life cycle, and the other one is the transformation cycle. And there are four elements to this cycle. And they match up, really, um, with the chart that I gave you this morning. There's the declaration of what God wants to do for the next stage in your life. You get this thing and you think, wowee, that's it. You're immediately plunged into the next bit, which is distress. And the declaration and the distress develop you. And then you get a demonstration of what God said in the first place. So we can't enter into our personal destiny with God unless we allow ourselves to be developed. 
And this and the life cycles, as I said, are where I find myself now. And Psalm 4, 1, not in all versions, but uh, I think it's probably in the King James, says, Answer me, O God, when I call. Thou hast enlarged me while I was in distress. As far as I've lived it, it's only when I'm in a place of distress that the enlargement actually takes place. And uh, Carol Shires, actually, bless her, when she was down here last time, said, I see you being enlarged. There is like a stretching going on, and I thought, ouch. <laughs> the stretching is going on to make more of a capacity for more ability for the life and the love of God to be in here. Uh, so that is what it's all about. It's getting the rubbish out and getting him in. So distress is the agent that God uses to enlarge us. I wish it was in pill form too. But the truth of it is, we need trials and distresses to enlarge us in our faith and confidence in God. Every time we go through something, something is enlarged within us. That space is bigger within us. So the first thing that comes is declaration. The word of God comes to you by prophetic utterance or from him when you are alone with him. It tells you where he wants you to be going next time, what he wants you to be heading up for. So just as you see your name in lights, this is really going to propel me into the big time, God moves Las Vegas and you find yourself surrounded by sand in the desert, alone, you and him, boot camp, distress not so good in Genesis 37 you all know about Joseph he had two prophetic dreams declaring God's rule and power over his life and through his life sounded good brothers and mother and father are going to bow down before him he's going to be the ruler and the reigner that sounds like a good deal ruling and reigning but Joseph has to be prepared for that the word of God here reveals his destiny, so I point you back to your chart at the beginning there, where it says about the uh, revelation, which is the word that comes to you. So he thinks, whoa, I'm up for this. The difficulty is that this word is all about that one day his father and his brothers will come and bow down before him. And that's not going to happen in the natural because there's a hierarchy in family life in that culture. And if his father died, it would pass to the oldest son, and that wasn't him. It didn't compute with their culture. And Joseph's got this word about ruling and reigning, but it isn't going to be fulfilled, as Graham says, through an empty-headed kid who can't keep his mouth shut around his brothers. So he needs training, development and maturity. When you get a prophetic word over your life that tells you what your ministry is or what your calling is going to be or where God wants to take you next, it's out there and it's wonderful and you're looking at it. But your character has got to rise up to the level commensurate with the word that God has given you. So while we're all stood there stargazing, thinking my ministry is about to open up, as I just said, it's almost like we go in the opposite direction. The ground opens and swallows us up for a while. God's not looking at our destiny and ministry right now. He's looking at something in the forefront of our life. And 99.999% of the time, it's a character issue. Anything that doesn't look like Jesus in us, the Holy Spirit will attack in order to conform us to the image of Christ. 
just stand still while I knock this lump off you. You've heard the story of the man and the block of marble coming in. Uh, he's a sculptor. And then another guy said to him, well, what are you going to make out of that? So oh, well, I'm going to sculpt a horse. Well, well how do you start that? Would you do that? How do you do that? Well, I just knock off every bit that doesn't look like a horse. So he knocks off every bit that doesn't look like Jesus, gets his hammer and chisel out and starts uh, doing it. I mean, you know the story of the Three Stooges, do you? Yeah, most of you do. Anybody don't know the story of the Three Stooges? No? Good one. Want to hear it? Uh -huh. Graham Cook starts off in prophetic ministry around about 1987, maybe earlier than that. And nobody but nobody wanted to know about prophecy in those days. So he starts his schools and everybody is against him. And um, he's got these three guys that put outside where he's going with boards. This man is a false prophet. Don't listen to a word that he says. Up and down they go outside the thing. And then when the doors open, they're down the front there with their notebooks writing down all these things. Writing to him, telling him he's a false prophet and he's praying, Father, kill him. <laughs> Father, maim him. Get him out of the way. Just go rot them. Do something. Or just <coughs> maim them slightly, but get him out of the way. So this goes on for two years. They follow him around all over the country, writing him letters, defaming his character the lot. One night he has a dream. And in the dream he's sitting on the arm of God's chair in the throne room with his legs across God's lap. And Father says to him, Would you like to see something? Yeah. So in comes this slab of marble, like that, <coughs> just stands in front of the Lord. So Jesus leans forward, and with his finger he just makes an outline in this piece of marble. And then from behind the marble come sculptors, banging away there, banging away. So God says to him, great, it's not going to happen unless you encourage him a bit. So he said, I ended up standing on the arm of God's chair with my hand on the top of his head shouting, come on, come on, come on, come on. Until eventually this statue stands there, absolutely beautiful. He said, I cried because it was a statue of him. So Father says, um, would you like to see the sculptors? So out from behind the marble comes the three stooges, as he now calls them. And he woke up laughing. So next time, next meeting, there they are in the front row. He said, I'm down off the stage and I'm shaking hands with them. Thank you, guys. Well done. Brilliant. Keep it up. Keep it up. They just don't know. <laughs> they think he's gone funny. But this is because he now realises what their purpose is in his life. They're grace growers. So identify your grace growers. It's, he's just forming Jesus. So there was a lot in him, like there is a lot in, in all of us to be dealt with that the classic I think is the one where God showed him something about a man in his fellowship he said you know we had that sort of relationship where I loved to hate him and he hated to love me it was a love-hate relationship and he the Lord had shown him something about this man's private life and a sin in his life so he's on his way isn't he to tell him that he knows what he's been doing so he's marching down the road and the Lord said where are you going well I'm going to see Sansa take another step and you're a dead man stops in his tracks go home and fast till I tell you to stop so he turns round and goes back 30 days later fasted for 30 days God said now go and see the man oh father don't make me do that in that time God has changed his heart towards this man 
I want you to go around and see him. Father, I can't do this. I can't. I can't do it. I don't feel like that. I don't want to. I don't want to confront him. I understand now. I don't want to confront him. So this argument goes on for three days, and eventually he goes round to see the man. Knocks on the door. Man opens the door. Bursts into tears. Says to Graham. I've been praying for the last 30 days. I've got this terrible sin in my life and I need to tell someone. <laughs> First, God had to change Graham's heart towards what was going on. He said, now we're the best of mates. Mm -hmm. So don't be surprised when you get a prophetic word that your life goes in absolutely the opposite direction because there are things that he wants to deal with in you uh, in order to bring your character up to the level of your gifting. And that will happen from time to time. If your gifting goes up there, suddenly your character's got to catch up with it. So these are the things where you go into your pruning, which is at the top. So he measures growth. He doesn't measure time. And this is why many people have got words over their lives that aren't coming to pass, and they don't understand why. Because we have to cooperate with God as he brings us into line with the word or words that he's spoken over us. Maybe even right now you're thinking, so that's why I'm still wondering about that word, and I thought they were false prophets. You know, that's what you think, don't you? So after this teaching, you might want to ask the Lord how to get into alignment with what he's spoken over your life, and get back on track, and see things begin to shape up. If you've got prophetic words that have not come to pass, go back to the Lord and ask him where you are, what cycle you're in, how you can get in alignment with him to bring it to pass. So he's given you that word and now he's measuring the growth of your character and waiting for the moment when it reaches the same level as the word of prophecy and then something is released. This can be the point at which you find yourself going round in circles, which is also in that little diagram there. Um, if you experience that going round or what appear to be the same circumstances time and again and only faces change, God is saying something. He's putting you through the same test. And at this point, a good question is, what does this mean? What are you teaching me? That moves things on brilliantly. Because if you suddenly see the same old set of scenarios with the, but different people, but the reaction in you is the same, but they're coming at you with the same stuff, you need to get a bit of a revelatory information on that one. Until that time comes, you're just shooting in the dark. Until that time, you've got a hunger and thirst for significance to fulfill your ministry. Your destiny is hanging out there, but nothing's happening in your character. It's actually the worst place in the world to be. Hungering for being released, but not having the character to actually move into it. And God doesn't actually trust you with it. If God doesn't trust you, you see, the people around you won't trust you. You can only recognise what you see. That is why elders should always have been doing the job for some time before they can be promoted. When it says in Timothy, lay hands on no man suddenly, it doesn't mean don't lay hands on people when you want to pray for them or to get deliverance. It means do not lay hands on a young Christian who's wet behind the ears and has not had the experience. That is what that means. Test them with it first. See if they're trustworthy. Watch what they do. And that's why elders need to have been doing the job before they're promoted. You recognise what you see. A number of times I've actually had prophecies that have said, and they usually come from Lola, my friend in Devon, 
God is trusting you with this. It, it makes my blood run cold. Because I know that without his grace I can't be trusted. Whatever it is she's speaking over my life, I'm thinking, or words to that effect. I know that means that tests are ahead. And what's more, I probably won't even realise I'm going through the tests until I'm through them or I find myself going through the same thing again. It's an awesome thing for God to say, I'm trusting you with this, because you're sort of screaming inside, I can't be trusted. What are you doing that for? But what it is actually is he's taking you into a different place, teaching you different things, and around it and often as you need, so that you can go up another level. So there's a divine contradiction in the journey from revelation to manifestation. You get revelation, confrontation, transformation and manifestation. There's a journey from the word being spoken to the word being released. In other words, you can't get there from here. You can't get to fulfillment from where you are now. There's a process and a journey. And your life has to go in the opposite direction for a time because God is dealing with your character. Think back to Joseph and his word. His life went in totally the opposite direction. God establishes a series of tests in his life which are going to be the making and the breaking of him. He's now in this cycle. He's caught up in a process, a series of steps, a series of stages, working towards personal change. Can't get there from here. So he has this huge declaration of God and the next thing happens is plunged into total distress, death by installments. The Word of God always tests you in three things. Betrayal, how will you handle that? Rejection, how will you handle that? Accusation, how will you handle that? Every one of us is going to be betrayed by somebody. Rejected, despised, misunderstood is part of the lifestyle of Jesus. And we're called to walk in the fellowship of his sufferings. So as Graham would say, stop moaning. It's part of the training. Because we will do our share of rejecting, betraying and accusing, so it does even out a bit. And if not, it just means we're being trained at a deeper level. Think about it, someday I won't need to be rejected, betrayed or accused in order to grow up, because I'll be there. I'll have grown and it won't matter anymore. The other day the Lord said to me over something that was going on in my life, um, just allow yourself to be misunderstood. Just allow it. Okay then, if that's what it's about, it's about being misunderstood. I've had plenty of misunderstands. <laughs> Usually in church settings, this was in a different one. So, oh, I'll just keep quiet, button up, and keep quiet and allow myself to be misunderstood. Because we've got to rise up and explain ourselves, don't we? So, how will you handle rejection like Joseph had? Suddenly he has the realisation, the awful truth that his brothers have sold him and his soul was laid in iron. His brothers have sold him. Can you imagine how he felt? You possibly felt like this once or twice in your life. I cannot believe they've done that to me. His soul was laid in iron. It went in as a pain of betrayal. But in Genesis 42, when he's been in Egypt and doing all the stuff, his brothers had grief over what they'd done to him. And they said, we are truly guilty because of our brother. We did not listen to his distress. 
Joseph's life goes in the opposite direction, down into a pit. Prophets in training or people in transformation. It's at the point where he gets dragged across the desert that his calling goes back into the hands of God. And now Joseph has to learn to trust God. So the Holy Spirit is doing two things with you right now. He's bringing you to a place where you can trust God and to a place where God can trust you. He's going to take everything out of you, everything that shouldn't be there, every ounce of ambition, every desire for power. It's not until these things are stripped away from you that you can be trusted. If you're serving somebody else now because you have an agenda for your own ministry, you will never reach the goal. Let God strip that away from you because he wants you to become a true servant. All the time you're thinking, I want this, I want this, you're not getting the point. You can't get promoted until it's gone. Everyone goes through distress towards destiny. When you get to the place where you can say, look, I just want to serve you, I don't care about anything else, to the point where you have no agenda, then God thinks, now I can promote you. By that time you don't care in the nicest possible way. Your not caring is not, has no retaliation in it, you don't care. If you will allow God to vindicate you when you're in a circumstance, by the time you know you are vindicated, you have no interest in it. It does not matter. There is no desire in you to retaliate or to let them know exactly what you thought. There's none there. It's gone. If you will shut up and let him do it, but if you don't, of course, then you walk into the trap that is, he's just privily laid for you and you have to go through it again. So everyone goes through distress towards their destiny. What did Jesus say? Now is my soul is in distress. Father, save me from this hour. But no, Father, glorify thy name. In the midst of your distress, Father, be glorified. Glorified your, glorify your name. It's just the absolute opposite of the way we look at things, isn't it? Because we've got the world's viewpoint on it. We would say glory is having your name in lights. He says, glory is when I'm in distress. Be glorified in my distress. That's the prayer God wants you to pray. Thou hast enlarged me while I was in distress, laying still under the hand of God. So he's glorified in two things in your life and in your ministry and in the process that takes you there. Hurts are necessary for our transformation. That's how we learn grace and mercy. You have to learn that God will not forsake you. You have to learn to trust, and it's not embittered trust. I love God, but I'm suspicious of people. I love God, but I don't trust the leadership. That's embittered trust. It's a trust that will cause you to bounce back into what God is doing, recognising that those around you are only human. Leaders are only doing their best. Hopefully they don't set out to mislead and harm you. That actually is just like a spin-off. It happens because sometimes I think of our false expectations from leadership. We expect far too much from them. So as we forgive and exercise mercy towards them, 
mercy has been ex- as mercy has been exercised towards us, something grows on the inside of us, and we lose our judgmentalism and criticism and begin to move in the love, grace and mercy of the Lord. We see things from a different perspective. That's what we were talking about earlier on, weren't we? Perspective changes the way we position ourselves before God, which changes the way we petition. We have to see from a different view. If we're hurt, we know how to forgive and release and get healed quickly. You don't have a right to be hurt. You have a right to be healed, as Graham would say. We're being transformed. So don't hold a grudge, because you're not holding a grudge. A grudge is actually holding you. Let it go, because it's harming you. We were talking about that in the kitchen today, at lunchtime, because I suddenly had a little grizzle, as you do. And um, I said to to Anne and whoever was there, as Anne and June, and I said um, something about having a little cry that releases something inside. And Anne said it's something to do with um, endomorphins or something, you say? Something in the tears, and it releases. Yeah, that's it. We were saying about what it does to your body if it's if it's not released, if you can't cry, that has a physical effect on your on your on your body. Sickness or tension or something are not on the inside there. Um, so there there is everything's got a purpose, hasn't it? So I had my little grizzle, and I felt better then. So I said, coming in with red eyes to do the second half. <laughs> so trials are graded in order to produce a, a particular aspect of God's character in you. There are certain levels of trials designed to produce certain types of things in our life. I wish they weren't, but they are. The purpose of demonic oppression is to teach you power. The purpose of human opposition is to teach you grace. And that's why you need to identify who your grace growers are in order to learn this lesson. The purpose of tension and difficulty is to teach you how to rest. Didn't do very well this morning. And the purpose of trouble is to teach you patience. Trials are graded in accordance with the anointing as well. That is another cycle, the cycle of anointing that he wants to bestow on you. Your trials are never out of control as God is concerned. When I was typing this up, I felt it was like you're like in this microwave and you're going round and round with it on full power and he's just looking through the glass to make sure you don't boil over. You know, you're praying, get me out of here. <laughs> just a couple more turns and you'll be done. Tender. So some tests may be over fairly quickly and maybe they're allowed to teach you grace. Other tests are examining your faith level in order to produce patience in you. Obviously, those are going to take longer because patience is what God wants to produce. You have to go the whole way or you'll go round it again. So stick with it. I had some problems with my teeth. It must be a year, 18 months ago now. I can't remember. And he said to me at the time, you're going to get... I wanted a bridge because I'd lost a large double tooth, but it's going to take time. And it took, I think, 18 months from the from the beginning to the end when I finally got this thing in my mouth but the grace of God was I got about £700 worth of dental work for nothing because I was on guaranteed pension credit (laughs) thank you father (sighs) sometimes you just have to wait he's saying if you let me grow these things we can move on 
You stay in each stage as long as you want to stay there. If we don't develop the character, then we lose grip on our maturity that God wants to give us. Patient endurance, God wants us to learn. I mean, we're not into that, are we? We're into instant. Pour it in, put the hot water on and mix it. That's it. But he hasn't changed. He's agricultural. It takes time. Two things, patience and endurance. 2 Timothy 2, 3 and 4 says, You must endure hardness as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. Quit moaning, quit complaining. Your life is a battleground with God on the one hand and Satan on the other and you're in a battle every day for the rest of your life so you might as well enjoy it. So God is actually forging a ruler in Joseph and he went through his trial to give birth to the anointing that would take a nation. The bigger the call on your life, the bigger fall you're going to have into distress and the more God is going to strip away from you personally. Joseph was more concerned with his brother's sadness over him than his anger at their betrayal by the time God had taken him through everything. He says to them, God meant it for good. Genesis 45.5 You were used, but it wasn't you. It was God. It's okay. That's the sign of a healed personality. You're not healed until you can pray and give into the lives of those who have hurt you. Those things don't have any power over you anymore. You're healed. We must come to the place of kindness and generosity. God's dealings with them are God's dealings with them. We mustn't look to see how God is dealing with them because of the way they've dealt with us. Leave it to him. So process is about knowing what God is doing in you and knowing what he's doing through you and not confusing the two. And if you're prophetic, it's about not prophesying over somebody else what God is actually doing in you. A number of times I've heard that. People prophesy words and I'm thinking, uh-uh, that's for you, that's what he's doing in you. Uh-uh. Don't fit me or Joyce or something. Uh-uh. Never mind, we're all learning. <laughs> that's okay practice but there are two different things what he's doing in you and what he's doing through you and that's what you can find out in these cycles where am I in the cycles how can I cooperate because essentially we're saying if I can line up with you I can get through this thing faster and uh, do what you want me to do so crisis always leads us to process and we will always have that cycle of crisis and process process is a series of steps ordained by God for a particular reason. And what you allow yourself to learn in adversity will stay with you through your life and will form the basis of your life's message, that internal anointing that we spoke about. June and I were talking at lunchtime and she said that everything's breaking loose at home. But God was saying to her, you keep focused on me. You just keep your eyes on me and what's happening in the periphery, that's right, isn't it? Is what's happening. But you keep your eyes on me and I'll show you what's going on. I said to June, I think my eyes went cross this morning and I completely lost, lost the plot. So, distress and then development. The third area is development. And distress and development work together. They're twins. Two sides of the same coin. They always go off together hand in hand. When you're in distress, God is developing something in you. So you're not there in distress for no purpose. You're there because he's developing something. 
Pharaoh promoted Joseph to oversee his house because Joseph had developed a whole range of skills, not just because he was able to analyse his dream. Joseph knew about people management, land management, political skills, etc. He was a bright boy. He learned a whole range of skills while he was there and he had favour with God. All those skills God developed in him. When you're in distress, this is your major development opportunity from God. And Joseph had two tests in particular. One was the test of purity, Potiphar's wife. The test of sanctification and personal holiness. He could have said, I've been betrayed by my brothers, I've worked my way through to a position of power, my own place and some money, I deserve a bit of R&R. &R. Why not? He didn't. He ran as fast as he could, left his coat behind, didn't he? And it seems like it's all been for nothing, he slapped into jail. So the second test was one of patience. Here he is, down there in Clink. And he rises again to rule the prison system because he'd proved his integrity and his faithfulness so they promoted him within there. God's timing is more important than time. He makes the mistake of asking one of the released prisoners to remember him to the governor. Sorry son, you just missed that one. Another two years until you learn. It's my timing, not yours. Don't try to push it. Hard lesson, has to stay there for another two years till he's patiently waited God's time. If we're not careful about our character development, we always end up destroying what we've built with our gift unless transformation has occurred. Smith Wigglesworth said that you can destroy in five minutes with your character what it's taken five years to build with your gift. Character is more important than gift. Your character is the fruit of the Spirit in you and through you. I always say gifts are like baubles on a Christmas tree, but character is the tree itself because the roots are going down deep into Christ and the fruit that comes off the tree is growing off the, off the Spirit in you. So you could take baubles off or put them on. It's not, that's why it's by your fruit, by their fruit, that you'll know them and not by their gifts. So it's important that you identify right now your own stages of development. God wants you to be faithful and true. That's the prime thing. He wants you to be faithful. Learn faithfulness. When he speaks to you, he gives you a test to establish that word in your life. You can't fail it, you just keep retaking it if you don't pass it the first, second, third, fourth time. We measure success by what we achieve, but God doesn't measure success in that way. He measures it by the faithfulness that you display. It's constantly standing up and being faithful to our call. God's looking for faithfulness and perseverance. He's also looking for stamina, that hunger to press in. This whole process is designed to deliver you to a place of humility and suffering. Because it's in humility and suffering that you really do learn sacrifice. When he sees those qualities of faithfulness, perseverance, stamina, humility and suffering, he will release blessing in proportion to the character that you have allowed him to develop. 
when God sees these qualities, he knows he's got something he can trust, then he will move heaven and earth. He'll open a door that no man can shut, and his presence will fill that area that you submit to him. Just make sure it's a big one. And then the cycle is complete. You've gone through declaration, distress, development, and now there's a demonstration of the very declaration that God gave you in the first place. So the cycle is completed. It begins and ends with God himself, and the declaration becomes true because of the de demonstration of the very prophetic word that God gave you. And you can say, this is that which was spoken. You're living in the unfolding of prophecy. Some twenty odd, very odd sometimes, years later. There is no more powerful place to live. Everything you do has been foretold. So let's have a little prayer and we'll finish. Father, thank you. I thank you. You understand everything about us and you have a process whereby you are transforming and developing each one of us. Help us understand where we are in the cycles that you've shown us, Father. Some of us, Lord, may find that in our present circumstances we can be demonstrated in both cycles. You're doing a number of things in us at once. Help us to submit to that stage of the cycle in which we find ourselves. Help us to bend the knee and to fall in with your wishes. Help me, change me, transform me. I want to be the man, the woman that you want me to be. If I'm in the desert, Father, romance me. If I'm in distress, develop me. Help me to see you. Help me to find you. Help me to come and bow the knee to you. Help me to come and hold your hand. Guide me so I can hold on to you, Lord. Help my spirit man to rise up over my soul so that I can hear even the faintest stirring of your breath. And Father, thank you. You didn't leave me. You didn't forsake me. I just lost sight of where you were, particularly this morning. Help me to submit wherever I am, knowing that you are changing me from one degree of glory to another. Be glorified in our response, Father, in Jesus' name. Holy Spirit, I pray that in the next weeks or months you would breathe on every single one of us and show us where we are and then help us to submit to whatever stage in the process we're in and help us to do so gladly knowing that you are with us, working in us and changing us and moving us from one degree of glory to another. Lord, be glorified in our response, in our submission and in our response to you. Allow us, Father, enable us to enjoy the cycle we're going through. In Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. Thank you for listening. <laughs>